I can like tell you what I did, but basically I've like worked through this whole process to trying to figure out what really matters. And it's nothing uh, close to what I thought mattered in the beginning, <laughs> basically is the takeaway. <laughs> basically wasted a lot of time. So we know a little bit about what doesn't matter. Did you get any closer to finding out what does? I think so. Do you want me to cut to the, you want me to cut to the, the punchline? Tell, tell me what matters. Regulation. Mm. It's the least sexy thing I could have fucking said, but it's true. It's also highly unfortunate. It sucks. That sucks. It really sucks. Hello again, my friends, and welcome to Jorgensen Soundbox. I'm a writer and investor in early stage startups, and this show is a sidecar on the magical motorcycle of my curiosity. I bring you along as I try to figure out and place bets on how I think the future will unfold. Today, my guest is my good buddy, Zach Pettit. Zach is currently the head of content at Money 2020, the biggest fintech conference in the world, which means he's one of the best suited people to see what's happening in fintech, who the big players are, and where the industry can go next. He's the perfect person for this job uh, because he's a massively unique individual. I like to describe him as the child of Jason Momoa and Larry David, who was raised by Charlie Munger and Wiz Khalifa as co-parents. Just let your imagination run wild with that. Zach is fearless about being himself, uh, about impacting the world of fintech and doing both at the same time, which I really admire him for. And we dive into that in the episode. We talk about what the ideal future of fintech could be. We talk about how stubbornness can get you your dream job. And we talk about how events businesses work and how they can be wildly profitable if done right. Please enjoy this conversation arriving at your ears right after one quick message from a sponsor. Before we get to the show, I'd like to tell you about one of my favorite discoveries of the past few months, the Founders Podcast. David Senra, the host, is a biography reading machine. He has hundreds of entrepreneurs' biographies read from all across history, and this podcast is him talking through his notes, quotes, and key insights from each book. My favorite aspect is how he connects the stories between people like Walt Disney, Steve Jobs, and Andrew Carnegie. This guy is an absolute encyclopedia of knowledge. And if you don't have time to spend 40 hours reading the new skyscraper size biography of some gilded age entrepreneur, listening to David's high quality recaps in you know 90 minutes are the next best thing. This is a paid podcast uh, and you get access to the whole back catalog, which has hundreds of episodes and all new episodes for $99 a year or permanent lifetime access for $299. I've personally listened to more than 10 episodes now. Uh, I loved them all. I've especially enjoyed the ones about Anthony Bourdain, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Elon Musk, uh, specifically the early days of SpaceX. Next on my list uh, to listen to are the books about the Rothschilds, Banking Family, and the founder of the Four Seasons Hotel. I'm attracted to those both because I want to learn about them, but not quite enough not, not a book level appetite, but a podcast level appetite. Learning through biographies is something that Charlie Munger and Mark Andreessen uh, both advocate heavily. It's something I love to do. And this Founders podcast is a way to get those lessons in a really high signal, high efficiency way with David's help. Go to founders.simplecast.com to learn more and sign up. Uh, you can also listen to free 30 minute sample episodes on any podcast 
player before you purchase the paid feed. Again, that's founders.simplecast.com. Thank you for supporting the sponsors who make this show possible. Now, please enjoy this conversation arriving at your ears in three, two, one. All right. <laughs> Should we work? I mean, I don't, is this work getting to talk to you about business on a podcast while we record it and act like this is work? I mean, sure. Yeah. Let's We're going to pretend like this is work. All yeah. right. Let's work yeah. then. Let's work. I'll get very serious. Okay. Get serious. All right. What would you, how would you describe your specific knowledge? Ooh, interesting. I would describe my specific knowledge as financially oriented and filtered by humans. So I'd say I, I don't, I, I have accidentally spent eight of my life, eight years of my life in finance and accidentally learned a shit ton about finance to the degree where I forget most of the things that I know until I end up in a conversation about it. And then they're like, hey, well, how do you handle this side of the balance sheet for, you know, liabilities when it comes to this? And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, yada, yada, yada. And they're like, wait, I have to like look around and look behind me and like, wait, who said that? How did, how did I know this? So you very slowly just kind of like take in knowledge by being in the room. Yeah. Over a decade. Yeah. 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 I mean, being in the room and then also just being in rooms that I shouldn't have been in and then like listening to podcast and everything else, you know, just complete and utter obsession out of that was spurred by anger and a lot of it. And it still maintains. It's still spurred by anger on a very regular basis. See, this is the Larry David. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wh why did you say you ended up in finance accidentally? And why, and why was it spurred by anger? Well... Let's go back to my youth. The anger started when I was young. So my dad went bankrupt when I was a kid and I grew up in a, most folks listening to this, I'm guessing are not in Kansas city. So I'll just say grew up on the rough side of town. I suppose Kansas city is a very racially divided city. I grew up on the side where people would guess I did not based on how I look now as a six foot four, 30 year old white male, but was surrounded by payday loans and check cashing places. And just like saw the insanity that that comes along with the American economy, but comes along with being poor in the American economy. Just realizing how friggin' expensive it is to be poor mm -hmm. was the thing that I figured out as a kid. But I kind of thought that's what everybody was dealing with. And this is just kind of how the world worked. And like, when you get a check on every two weeks, you go to the check cashing place and they just take 10% of it. And that's just how life works. Oh, wait, turns out, grow up. That's not how life works at all. Yeah. That was just a very rough part of town and how you had to function to function in that specific geography. So then when I grew up a little bit further, I went and did an internship at Merrill Lynch. My internship at Merrill Lynch pissed me off to the nth degree where <laughs> I basically realized there was like one day we went to, <laughs> I actually tell the story pretty often. There was one day we went to a uh, lunch with this woman who is a wholesaler from a, well, fuck it, SunTrust because they're known to sell annuities. So I don't think I'm telling any tales out of school, but she came in said, Hey, here's an annuity. It's a you know, regular cash flow, yada, yada, yada. Oh, and by the way, you can make 3% when you sell this to your clients. Like, Oh, oh that's interesting. Everything else I'd heard about was, you know, 30 basis points. So like one tenth of that. And we go back to the office, didn't think much of it. It was just another lunch. We go to a lot of lunches, wealth managers. We go back the whole afternoon, the whole next day, the whole rest of the internship, we're selling annuities to everybody. We're selling annuities to 90-year-olds. We're selling annuities to 50-year-olds. We're selling annuities to anybody. And it's not that they all bought them, but it's even just the fact that we brought it up in conversation. You tried. It yeah. tried. It's like, this is not this is not what they need. And then you realize that a broker-dealer, which is what Merrill is, has the ability to take off a hat 
which would be the fiduciary hat, which is where you have to act in the best interest of that person and put on a broker-dealer hat where you can just do something that is suitable for them. Suitable doesn't hand, doesn't stand up in court very well most of the time when you actually, like when the rubber meets the road. So you can pretty much sell anybody anything and make a claim that it's suitable. So anyways, really long-winded version of like the incentives in the financial system are incredibly broken. And I got to see that in college. And then ever since then, that was eight, nine years ago. And anger has driven me every day since. <laughs> so you saw at the ripe young age of, I don't know, 18, 19. Something like, like that. I was like a year behind, so like 20. But yeah. <laughs> commission-driven salespeople under the like understanding of a fiduciary responsibility and like the guise of a consultative sale. I don't know if predatory is too strong, but like certainly an asymmetry of knowledge That's selling a products nice way to put that it. like may or may not have been beneficial for people. And, and then now you've decided to spend your life doing a kamikaze run at the financial industry. From the inside, you know, from the <laughs> yeah. inside. You're yeah. like Ron Swanson, the libertarian, you know, city manager. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. In a weird way, in a weird way. And I mean, the other thing about it is I think like you grow up, you grow up thinking that there is some utopia to create, mm-hmm. right? Like I always thought back when I was selling, you know, doing the Merrill Lynch thing, I was like, ah, this should be perfect. Why isn't this perfect? Why is not every incentive aligned? Why does not yeah. everyone function in their own best interest? Why, you know, and then you realize like, number one, we're all animals and making emotional decisions. And then number two, like there's inherently no way that we are going to create a utopian financial system. That's just not capitalism, but it's the best we got. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, my, like my version of what changing the industry is and my version of success, I think has changed a lot, but my general, like as to why I get out of bed and like why I kind of have the perspective that I do yeah, it definitely goes back to that. Like I've I've hated Robinhood for a really long time before it was cool. You know, I hate sport gam sports gambling right now. That's not very cool yet. But give it a couple of years, people will fucking hate sports gambling. Yeah, you can tell sports gambling's fucking stuff up because they're having to start advertising against themselves now. Similarly, cigarettes and alcohol. Do. And it's very firmy. Yeah, you know, it's like anytime that you have to put like anytime that you have to put boilerplate on your commercial, you're selling something that is has potentially more harmful externalities than. Yeah, it's potentially <laughs> it something that should not be allowed to be, be on that fucking commercial, you know? And like, I don't know. This yeah. Again, this is where I get into the <laughs> utopian versus the realistic. But like, I, I you know, I, I think that it's Fisher Investments is a good example. They spend so much goddamn money on these advertisements. And I think it's really hard for people to figure out, is that legit? Is that not legit? It seems slightly less legit than your Morgan Stanley ad, but maybe the idea of fee only revenue and like not it's just so hard to figure out so in the same way that like how would i know if i should pick valtrax or this like how should i know if i pick fisher or morgan like no one is educated enough to make these decisions and then we just go market to them as if they actually know what the hell we're talking about so anyway Uh, you said your definition of success has changed after Mm -hmm. time in the industry what is it now my definition of success in the industry at this point is to just leave it better than I found it when I was born. And to do that, knowing that I had an impact, not just like, eh, I lived 80 years and this thing that used to be absolutely horrible is slightly less horrible. I was on my couch the whole time, but yeah, looks yeah. good. I'm going to die now. Yeah. But like actually, you know, be able to look back in my career and say, this person wouldn't have been able to afford, you know, all the way to the point of like an individual, they wouldn't have been able to afford this house. This group of people 
benefited because they went to this technology instead of getting into this payday loan cycle. Things along those lines where if I can just look back and feel like I made a dent on the industry, even like a little dent because it's a big fucking industry, like I'll... I'll feel good about what we did here because it's, it's so freaking big. It's so it's big. Sweet. It's everything. And it, as like web three and DeFi and everything comes in, like it's literally everything now. Like we're really moving in a direction where everything is finance. And and it is like, I think you have a unique perspective on it. Cause a lot of people I know who are interested in finance kind of like came from a place where they were financially educated in their household. Yeah. They came from a place where like they under the game was understood by the generation before them. Yeah. And I mean, that's how I grew up and I consider myself incredibly lucky to have like been, been there and, you know, had my dad say like, Hey, compounding is really important. Yeah. When I was like five. Yeah. Um, and so like, but I think it's really interesting, you know, that finance has as much and maybe even more impact on the ability to like lift people up than the typical kind of like Ivy totally. League Wall Street approach that is like, hey, you have to go get in that game because that's where the money is. Mm-hmm. Like this is this approach, I think is like, you know, financial health is upstream of a lot of other things like physical health and housing and continued employment. And they're all intercorrelated. And yeah, yeah. I think finance at the end of the day is the thing. I think a lot of people are like, you know, wealth is health or whatever, or health is wealth or, you know, whichever direction you want to go with that. But I truly believe that <sighs> I'm going to fuck this up if I try and make like a really intense statement, I'm going to do it backwards. But I believe the dollar comes before the health, mm. right? I think that if you don't have that dollar, it's really hard to maintain your health. And if you don't have that dollar and you don't have the health, then like, what is the rest of life? Like, if you don't have your monetary life figured out, in the United States, it's pretty damn hard to do anything. Well, yeah, you end up living in a food desert. You end up yeah. buying the cheapest calories you can, which is fast food. You end up and it's a bank desert too that then cause greater challenges. Yep. Like, yeah, I, I don't think that's that's a crazy thing, but I think it's worth saying. Like, most people in finance are not motivated by that vision, or or maybe even aware on a first hand basis of like how important that is and and what sort of impact like even a relatively small improvement in financial health can have for you know the bottom 50 percent of americans so oh yeah i i don't think that i think that most folks that are thinking about finance especially thinking about it without the lens of technology are thinking about you know compounding right like compounding is something that absolutely you need to learn at a young age but it's it's almost more of an abundance mindset than than a lot yeah. of people can handle. You know, I mean, it's it's great. Yeah, like absolutely. We should teach kids about compounding at the age of five, six, seven, eight, ten, whatever. But also, as you said, if they live in a food desert, that means that they also probably live in a banking desert, mm-hmm. which means that probably the only places they get food is the same place they get their money, which is the ATM at the gas store or at the, the gas station. Yeah. Right. And it's just like, how the fuck do we expect anybody in this country? to feel a sense of equality or even feel a sense of like a shot of getting the hell out of the hood. If the only way that you can do it is sports or music. Yeah. Right. Like it's so like I was, I had a conversation last week with this guy that's a, he's basically like the connector of dots to like the Rick Rosses of the world and to the Mm. OBJs of the world. Like if, if he's a, you know, if they're either a really big musician or a really big athlete, this is the guy that's connected to all of them because he manages their money and he's a VC and yada, yada, yada. 
but he was even having a conversation just talking with him. He was like, the first thing that he needed to help a lot of these people with is the mindset of it is like understanding that this money is, this money is going to keep coming in, but you can't have a mindset that it's going to keep coming in. Yeah. Right. Like you have to let go of that, like incredible amount of (laughs) scarcity and believe in the abundance while at the same time not buying a Ferrari, which is like a really hard balance. And understand that you can put that money to work for you. Exactly. Which, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, if you've never had anything, it's so hard not to go buy the dope pair of shoes. Yeah. Like watching this Kanye documentary right now, like he wasn't kidding when he talks about buying a really, really dope watch before yeah. he has a house. Like he wasn't kidding. I always thought it was a joke. Yeah. He's, he's being serious. But like, that's the only way that you can like display the work that you've done kind of thing. And I just, I, I find that so interesting. So anyways, the, the initial point was like, the only other way that I've seen people get out of the hood is that guy who's just the connector mm. to the athletes and to the musicians. Yeah. It's like, we have to build, we have to do something that allow, that gives people more of a chance to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Do, and do you think, or has your perspective changed at all about like the ability for finance and finance companies to do that? I feel like the perception, you know, if you, if you ask you know, who serves underserved banking communities. It's like check cashing places, payday loan places, all with these kind of like super high margins or high, like, I don't know. Do, do you think ill of those companies that serve under underbanked communities? Like, is it possible to have a more, do you believe that capitalism can solve that problem? I guess that, that, that yeah. there is like under, like there is a great business to build there that is win-win between customers and businesses. Yeah, I think totally. I mean, I think one, it's a really interesting question around the, the, how do I think about the payday loan piece? Because I do in most cases. So I think there's a delineation one online payday lenders. Like if you've seen the first season of dirty money, when they get into the Scott Tucker stuff that happened, like whatever, 20 blocks that way. Yeah. That guy's a piece of shit that can rock, rot in hell. That I have no compunction about. Like, you are what's wrong with America. You're what's wrong with the financial ecosystem. You should be in jail. Yeah. If nothing else, just to show the world the way that we handle that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not often that I'm like, oh, yeah, let's make an example of him. But yeah. with that guy, I'm like, let's string him up by his toes and make him an example of him. Like, that's, yeah. let's go for it. The person that owns the check cashing place down the street from here that is also a payday lender to some degree, right? And we kind of just put those things together. (sighs) No, I don't, I don't have ill will towards them because that's the bank in the, in the neighborhood. Like that is kind that is just kind of how we've functioned as a society for so long. So no, I don't hold it against them. And actually, if you, you know, this is a lot of something that a lot of people in our industry don't do, but if you actually walked into one of those and you experienced what it was like, when I was a kid, my dad and I, I used to go there in there with him to get his check cashed. People are saying, thank you. Yeah. People aren't like walking in and saying like, here's my check. Fuck you. You know, it's like, here's my check. Thank you yep. for helping me get this cash so quickly. Like uh, pawn shops, the same, like, yeah. probably another part of this ecosystem. This is, like, it's exactly the same. Totally, yeah. totally, totally. There's a lot of pawn shops that do check cashing in the payday. It's the same yep. thing. So I don't have ill will against them. Can capitalism solve it with technology? Absolutely. I think we're already seeing that happen. In Solo a lot of funds ways. Is, is a great example. Solo like, funds is a great example. Payday yep. loans, basically. 
peer to peer payday loans. There's also a lot of companies way, way cheaper. There's also a lot of companies that are working really hard to avoid payday loan regulation mm. that are doing a much better job than payday loans. So one that I don't feel any compunction talking about publicly because I've done it before is one called Money Lion. So they got spacked in the midst of the Tremoth stuff and it's not worked out great for them. Um, you th- think you're like, I think I remember Is that the that. one in the UK? No. Oh, okay. No, okay, they're here. Nice. I think they at some point thought about expanding, but anyways, they spacked it up and it's not gone well, but they're an amazing model for what a payday loan could look like in a less disgusting fashion, which mm-hmm. is basically just like, here's a monthly membership. And that monthly membership is like 12 bucks, 10 bucks a month, whatever. Right. And then you, anytime that you need an extra hundred to $200, let us know. Mm-hmm. Right. And because you're paying us and because we have access to your direct deposit, you're de-risked in a really interesting way. So no, you have zero fucking dollars in your bank account right now. You should be scared. Yeah. But we have enough history on you to see that you got paid here, here, and here. And based on that, you should get paid here. So sure, here's 200 bucks. And just, no, there's no interest on it. It's free. Yeah. Um, but you're paying us a monthly membership, right? Yeah. So depending on how quickly that turns over, you can look at that between, it could be 10 to 12% APR, mm-hmm. but depending on how long it'll long it, like it, it depends on the situation. Yeah. But that's a much less predatory way of handling it. And... It also de-risks for the company a significant way because they have access to direct deposit and like yeah. they can pull the cash when it comes in. So I've seen them get attached to stuff like Stripe or uh, Gusto payroll, like yeah. predictable payroll things too for yeah. way, way cheaper because yeah. they can underwrite way better than, you know, the guy yeah. running a storefront where somebody just walks in. Yeah. So, I mean, flat, flat Those underwriting cash flow are meaningful, actually. Very. Like, yeah. Very. You can offer way cheaper money when with more data. Totally. And it's, it's kind of, it's like the, it's all, I feel like on a journey towards that, like web three utopia of like streaming money, mm-hmm. right. It's just like, as you do a thing, you, this tiny you drip. Every day. Yeah. You get paid every day. You get paid every minute, get paid every second, get paid every, whatever your microsecond, yeah. about, uh, uh, you know, just keep <laughs> fucking going. But I mean, that's, that's what we're moving towards, I yeah. think. And there's this whole wave of what are called earned wage access companies. EWAs is what they'll get called a lot. And it really is just that. It's like you earn this money. Your company's payroll system is too old and your company doesn't have the idea to even give this to you. But like, here's a corporate benefit. And you work this much today. Here's that amount of money. Great. We'll just take it out of your payroll in two weeks. Interesting. Yeah. What did you do with all this piss and vinegar you came into the finance industry with? Like, where'd you jump in? What kind of work have you been in up to in these eight years? Yeah, it's been... It's been a wild eight years. It's been a wild ride. The first the first stop that I made with my piss and vinegar was a company called Bloom, which is where you and I met yeah. because where your relationship blossomed. Yes, it is. It's yeah. where the seed planted and where things blossomed. So Bloom is a Bloom is a robo advisor, which is a technical term ish, I guess. It's not even really a technical term anymore, but robot advisor, right? So advisor, but without the human groundbreaking stuff. We got it. Zach, Zach, my my audience is pretty sharp. I, they can uh, they, they can they, they can, can do the etymology robo of advisor. robo advisor. Okay, cool. Yeah. I never I never when it comes to the depth of the fintech buzzwords, I never <laughs> know how much to unpack or you know just accept that everybody knows my acronyms. 
but specifically a robo advisor in the 401k space and 401ks are interesting because they're everywhere. So it's yeah. not just like, Hey, go set me up an IRA that is held anywhere. It's like 401k might be a fidelity, might be a principal, might be at, you know, wherever diet Coke holds theirs, yada, yada, yada. So it was a registered investment advisor that would through technology manage these 401ks for anyone across any company anywhere. And that was back when I thought the retirement mattered. So that was funny. But I've basically been on this journey through life of like trying to figure out what actually matters in the world of finance. And like, yeah, of course, if you have if you're making enough money, like put the damn money in the 401k and have somebody manage it. Sure. But I used to really think like, this is what matters. Why does no one have any money in their retirement accounts? Like, how is this possible? Yeah. And then from there, I moved into banking. And then in banking, I realized like, oh, it's because nobody has any savings, right? So I worked at a community (laughs) bank and I was like, oh, it's like, why would anyone put money in their 401k or IRA if they have like a dollar in their, you know, emergency savings account or didn't even know what emergency savings account was, Yeah. right? And then from there, I can like tell you what I did, but basically I've like worked through this whole process to trying to figure out what really matters. And it's nothing uh, close to what I thought mattered in the beginning, basically, is the takeaway. <laughs> basically, wasted a lot of time. So we know a little bit about what doesn't matter. Did you get any closer to finding out what does? I think so. Do you want me to cut to the, you want me to cut to the, the punchline? Tell, tell me what matters. Regulation. Mm. It's the least sexy thing I could have fucking said, but it's true. It's also highly unfortunate. It sucks. That sucks. It really sucks. I mean, it's like... I went from, you know, retirement to your savings matters to, oh, getting people out of debt matters. Oh, debt reconciliation matters. Oh, actually, at the end of the day, the only thing that moves any of this shit is when Washington decides to move any of this shit. Like, oh. that's the only reason people do anything Why? in this world. Why is regulation what matters? So the reason the payday loans have been allowed to function the way they've been allowed to function is because of, re- is because of regulation. The reason that earned wage access is being regulated the way it's being regulated right now is because it's basic, it basically hasn't been regulated. And as we come in and regulate it, it will, I think, improve. Because right now, a lot of people are looking at earned, wa- earned wage access as a loan, as an example, right? It's not really a loan. You did the work. You've mm-hmm. earned the money. It's just a matter of ACH is not that good at getting you your money and your payroll system is not that good at giving you your money. We shouldn't think of that as a loan. You earned the fucking money. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. So it's it's a matter of like in Washington getting to the point of actually looking at these things the way they should be looked at, right? Like there was news last week, whatever, the NF- NFTs are potentially going to get looked at as collectibles, which will impact, they will be like a 26, 27% tax rate or something like that for NFTs mm. if they're considered collectibles. That shit matters. If yeah. we decided to collectible versus an equity versus a this versus, I mean, we've been having this conversation about Bitcoin for so long. Yeah. Who from the Bitcoin world, who from the crypto world has gone and worked in regulation to actually get this fucking thing answered? Like, there's a couple, actually, like the FDIC, there are people that have done that, but not enough. And usually they end up solving their problem through capitalism in the private market, which I fucking respect. But we need more of these folks in Washington. And we also, I mean, if you watched people ask questions about Facebook during a Senate testimony, imagine them trying to ask questions about fintech. Is, is there a difference between, like, in technology, it seems more like something happens and then regulation catches up with it? Completely. In, in finance, maybe traditionally, it's a little bit more like you can't do anything until the regulation says it's okay. Is that 
I think, yeah, but the, now those two are starting to cross and intermingle in such a weird way, right? Like, yeah. so you were, you, I won't say the name of the company because I don't know if I'm supposed to or not, but you sent me a thing earlier today of like, I'm about to hop on with these guys, yeah. right? When I saw that, it was like, whatever, a 15% yield on your treasury, on your, on your treasury. Is that what it was? It was basically on like any cash, any cash. So was, I think we can, uh, there's no reason we can't say this, I guess. Go for it. Stable coin. No, stable gain. Stable gain. There, yeah, I was going to say, gain. it's not stable coin. Um, stable gain. And they are basically a super friendly, like front end anchor protocol currently. So okay. you can take any cash from your checking or savings, whether you're a business or a person and put it in this friendly kind of front end, like looks like any normal finance app. Yeah. And on the back end, they will connect it to anchor, which gets like 20% yield, but you don't have to worry about self-custody. And then you can, you get your 15%. Yeah. So imagine what you just said. Imagine saying that to a regulator. And I I know you haven't like met a ton of them, but their response to you would be one, what? Two, what? Three, what? And four, that sounds illegal. Yeah. Like how the fuck, what do you mean you're, you're getting me on like 15% returns no matter what all the time forever? Like, and they might not be full of shit, you know, yeah. like a lot of these companies are legit and are doing it in a way that if you actually dig into liquidity pools and you dig into why they exist, like, oh, okay, well, no wonder, like that asset shot through the roof this way. So of course you can do this and that and move this over here, like whatever, but it doesn't, it should be regulated because there's a lot of other, like if you take what you just yeah. described and you, you expand that kind of aperture out to anyone in the world of web three that's doing kind of yield farming oriented stuff. Yeah. I hate to break it to you, but a lot of that shit's illegal (laughs) or going to be in short order. It's this very, very slippery slope with a lot of it. And I don't want to point anyone, I don't want to point anyone, but it like overarchingly, there's a lot. There's a lot. You weren't supposed to say that. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. But that's, and this is what we, this is, the the only way that that world, the only way that Web three even close to comes to li- comes close to living out its potential, in my opinion, is if it's regulated. Like we have to have that world function inside of the regulatory schema yeah. in order for it to actually do what we want it to do. What what is the utopian like potential that you see? So like you're about as well-versed as anybody that I know in what the actual old architecture looks like, you know, how it works between the core providers and the Mm -hmm. ACH system and the community banks and like how the money actually moves and the messes that happen in the back end behind when you write a check or use a credit card, like how much of that can change? How much, like what does the utopia look like? I mean, it's a good question. The first thing I would say is the obvious stuff. Money moves faster, right? As soon as money moves faster, the whole world changes. Mm-hmm. ACH taking three days, wires taking however long, and you're just sitting there with your butthole puckered because you're not sure if it's going to get to where it needs to go. Like no web hooks on anything. Like we live in such a dystopia right now when it comes yeah. to like m- money movement that like anything is better. That being said... <laughs> What? Definitely had my butthole pucker on some crypto transactions. Yeah, well, as it's well. It, the overlap strong, <laughs> right? Like it, in terms of like moving moving crypto from one wallet to another. Yeah, it feels a lot like sending a wire for an investment. In a lot of you know, it's just like yeah, ah! yeah. <laughs> for whatever Hope period I didn't of cut time. Cut off one of those characters. Hope yeah, that money goes, uh, yeah. yeah, it's scary. It's a long twenty minutes. It's incredibly yeah. scary. So, one, 
that still needs to even get figured out for Web3, right? Yeah. Like that's still, like the webhooks don't even necessarily exist there yet. But what I would say is like this direction of trustlessness is interesting, but the efficiencies are what really I think is most interesting. And if you, so if you think about a mortgage, right? Mortgages, as an example, as of right now, regulatorily, you cannot do a mortgage faster than two weeks. Mm. You have to, there has to be two week process, a two week waiting process, basically. And some mortgage companies have gotten so efficient now that they literally just sit there and wait for two weeks. Like when I was at MBKC, the bank I was at a couple of times ago, like that two week wait period was basically just like, "Eh, here we are, got to wait for two weeks. Right. And one of the founders of SoFi went off and founded a company to basically solve this problem through blockchain, because Mm -hmm. it's just all that you all that you're doing with a mortgage is watching a set of a set of paper go from different division to different division to different division to different division. And then eventually it gets signed off because it got quadruple checked by eight different people on the same number. But it's eight people looking at the same number. It's like, what is is that the accurate income? Is that this? Is that that? Right. And you're kind of seeing where I'm leading here, where like a smart contract and or a set of smart contracts could potentially do everything that we're talking about in depending on the blockchain, depending on a set of situations, less than five minutes. Yeah, I don't know. You know, but it, maybe even faster if we're depending on what we're talking about. They pull in your income. They verify it. They pull in your previous tax statements. Oh, wait, we actually even get to think about digital identity in Web3, right? So you get to you get to grant permission to your digital identity and that encompasses pieces of your finance, right? Or pieces of your financial life, I should say. Here you go, Mr. Mortgage Man. Enjoy that. And as soon as you're done with it, let me know your claim or let me know like the rate that you want to give me. Also, I've granted access to five other mortgage lenders. And as soon as I pick the one that I want, I'm going to revoke access to all of my private information as soon as I decide. And then, oh, I'm going with you. Okay. Click yes. Let me know when it's done. You shouldn't need anything else from me. All I should be able, all I should need to tell you is this is the house I want. Mm -hmm. And here is who I am. Here's my digital identity. Everything else from there should be filled in. Instantaneous. And actually, I think the zero knowledge proofs allow for like, you don't even actually share the private information. All that run, like something separate runs and just says like, yes or no checks on on all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The actual question you asked, like you just answered it. I was still semi answering it in the way that like web 2.5. And I think that's the actual answer is like, middle of the road yeah i mean what i think what's so i've had it described like jason hitchcock in one of our i think our first episode was basically like asked the question of like you know where does that 20 percent yield come from like what happens and his explanation is basically like you see all the overhead of every bank ever every person that's employed every physical location every piece of paperwork every regulatory report like it's all smart contracts and instead of a profit margin, we're just handing it back because it's all one big collaboration between people who are lending and people who are borrowing. And no one wants there to be margin yeah. anymore because there is no ownership. There is no like for-profit entity in there. There is only like just push out the value to some combination of the users of the protocol. Is is that like, is that the utopian version like can you see most of the like finance or what percent of the finance infrastructure 
can you see melting away in the face of you know smart contracts and blockchain databases and zero knowledge proofs and it's a yeah it's an interesting question i think that we will inevitably stay 20 years behind what we should do mm. and just as a yeah as a, as a governmental well, entity as things become technologically possible it still takes a lot of time to catch up with yeah yeah exactly so I think, I mean, what we're describing and like the mortgage example I used, I forget that. I think it's called figure. Do you know the company I'm talking about? No, it, I, I think it's called figure. I always want to call it Figma and I know it's not Figma. <laughs> um, it's FIG something and it's not the fruit. So anyways, figment. No, no, it's not in my imagination. It's real. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I think it's figure. I'll look it up after this, but if we ever figure it out, we'll put it in the show notes. That's a figment of your imagination and a figure joke. We're moving through it good. Sorry, Johnny. So that's already happening today. I mean, that that exists, right? Yeah. And the reason that he founded the company, and I don't think he talks about it this way publicly, but I'll say it for him. It's so we can have like an employee and $8 billion, right? Like it's, yeah. like, <laughs> why wouldn't you, right? If you yeah. could start this gigantic, like mortgages are, it's a big fucking world. Yeah. If you could do... I can't believe the money that gets made in mortgages. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's amazing. It's so unsexy, but it's amazing money. Yeah. And if you could do a, a decent amount of mortgage volume yeah. in an efficient manner. At a high, high, high margin. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what I mean. It's like just the NBKC mortgage to NBKC as a whole. I want to say when I was there, it was like 350 and the mortgage department was 300. Wow. Whole big building. Gigantic. People, nice cars in the parking lot. It was good years in the mortgage market. So yeah, very nice cars in the yeah. <laughs> in the parking lot. Yeah. Low low interest rates in the Whole market. Empty floors in the building. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> like, where we got to play. Yeah. But it, I mean, that was it takes so many humans to get a mortgage done. Yeah. If if you needed one, if you needed half of the humans, much less one tenth, the entire the entire algorithm, the entire conversation about money changes. Mm -hmm. So I think the, I think that is really possible throughout the financial system in general. And, and back to what, I mean, where we started with the, the purpose driven nature of this, like, it's not just that the margins get bigger, it's that the margins get bigger and you can offer this for drastically yeah. less, which means more and more homes are accessible, which is an increasing problem since the housing prices are increasing. Like, a lot more people should be able to get mortgages or get mortgages for more. Well, probably not get mortgages for more. That's its own problem. But yeah. We've all seen that movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ryan Gosling was great. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it does it, but that's the thing, right? Is like, yes, it does lift people up by their bootstraps and it gives it yeah. it lowers the barriers to entry in general, which I think is great. But 99% of the time, in my experience, it goes towards what you just said, not what we like. Yeah not the why of the whole conversation we just started. It went towards, oh shit, this exists. How do I start a thing that turns in? Like, how do I go start a Ponzi scheme around it or something? You know, it's like yeah. humans tend to go the personally beneficial route, which I'm not acting like I don't, but I'm just going to sit here on my soapbox and act like they're worse than me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's humanity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. The constant, uh, yeah, re-narrativing to protect the ego. Yeah. Yeah, that's this is ninety percent of yep. our conversations. We sit in a hot tub, yes, and, <laughs> and uh, defend our defend our fragile inner selves. Yeah, yeah. and then the the one points out to the other one that this well, is happening. That this is happening, and, and go, the, shit, 
Yeah. yeah. And then we're just being our fragile little selves. Yeah. And then we, yeah. Anyway. And then we just try to carry on with our lives as though that didn't happen. Try to, try. but yeah. Do you want to talk about how you just basically like bluffed your way into a paid sabbatical for months? <laughs> We can. It's up to you. It if you think it's like, valuable to listeners, I'm happy to cover it. Look, who doesn't want like extended paid vacation? We can cover it for mental health reasons. I I I try in these to start with like, what do I think my guest is world class at? <laughs> That's where you go. And I have a number of responses to that in this case uh, that I'm happy to explore. But I think this is one that merits some investigation. <laughs> world-class and getting out of work for two months while getting paid. <laughs> I don't know a lot of people who have done that. It's, it was not a conscious effort. Exactly. You're uh, just, you're, it's a gift. It's a gift. And and I should like, I've been, I mean, that's a, a shit version of, of setting this up, but I do think <laughs> <laughs> the more friendly version is that I think of all the people I know, you are one of the few who is happiest in their job. And I think that your, wow. your career has been like, you spent years unhappy in your jobs. And I think so many people like conform, just like choose to fit the cookie cutter that they end up in. And sure. I think that's like a perfectly reasonable way to go about your life. If you just like got a job in a mortgage center and you're like, yeah. I'll just get good at this. And like, that'll be my life. Yeah. And I think it's remarkable that for like eight years, you were like stubborn enough and determined enough and had a high enough bar to sit there and be like, no, the world will give me a job that I love that serves that lets me serve like this industry the way I want to. And I will just not stop wow. throwing tantrums until it happens. And it turned out beautifully. I've never thought about it that way, dude. Um, it's actually pretty accurate. I, I And I, I like genuinely mean it as a compliment too. Yeah, I no, think, I know like, you did the way you teed it up. I was like, Oh God, <laughs> But now that I, now that I actually know what you mean, I, I get where you're coming from. How did I get to the place of the sabbatical or like just the whole I don't really know where to start on that yeah, one. No, I mean, like, uh, I don't know. Maybe talk about your your like mindset about because it because it's really the whole like that is one chapter of the whole story of like coming into the industry with piss and vinegar yeah. and spending eight years trying to figure out what mattered, working a ton of different places with a ton of different people and learning all these different things and trying to figure out like how to end up in a high leverage place, work with people that you want to work with, have an actual meaningful impact, and like. And use your talents for good. Yeah. And I mean, I guess choose whatever chapters you want to kind of like tell that story. But I, I think that's a thing that like, I don't know, is, is a sort of like divine and inspired dissatisfaction that like threads you through that whole thing. That's actually, that's painfully accurate. I mean, when I look back at like my past, yeah, ev every job that I've had, except for my time at the bank that I keep bringing up. I've kind of left in a huff and left in a bit of a not even, I mean, I, I haven't burned any bridges surprisingly, but I've definitely left in a y'all motherfuckers can't get your shit together. <laughs> you know, just, just like, like, like Larry David leaving a party. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But for some reason in my head, I sound like Cat Williams. So it's, uh, <laughs> It's confusing. Um, that's the Wiz Khalifa part. That's of the, the right. Yeah, there yeah. it is. There it is. Um, I true. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I, I have a very strong pain tolerance until I suddenly get to that level of fuck attitude where I just know there's no hope. And then I quit. I mean, gra groundbreaking story. I know. But with Bloom as an example, 
I'm still friends with the people that were the reason that I quit, you know? And like mm-hmm. I, you and I talk a lot about why I quit and it just came down to like, I was, I think I was too big for my britches at that point. It was convinced that I knew the direction the company needed to go. And people were like, Hey motherfucker, you too big for your britches. You don't know where this company needs to go. And I was like, I'll show you I'll quit. Yeah. Right. And it was like, what? But I, it came from a place of like knowing that, knowing that I needed to learn something about technology. Mm. Right. And Bloom was an amazing, amazing company. I got so damn lucky and I love everybody I worked with there and still like spend time with them. But I would say that the thing that held the company back was being KC. It's not even a matter of like the founders or who they are as people. It's like, this is a really hard time to find a technical co-founder. And if you don't have a technical co-founder from day one, a business like that, where like had you built an API five years ago to plug in uh, to all of these neobanks that exist today, I think it's a multi-billion dollar company right now, right? But you go into that company five years ago and you say, hey, we should build an API. AP what? Like, is it, what's that? Right. And it's like, not a, oh, let's go learn about it and find, it's a, no, we're building a financial management company. This is Mm -hmm. how we do it. So I left because I knew there was something I needed to go learn. And then I got to the next company. I learned a shit ton. It was the worst job I've had in my life. It was a year of pure fucking hell where I had to do everything from sell to QA, the software that I was developing with outsourced developers everywhere from the Ukraine to Russia to other places where warrant wars are not happening right now. <laughs> Actually, like Mexico, I had Mexican developers and okay. I think they're safe. And, you know, across South America, everywhere else. But it was terrible. I mean, one, nobody should do all of those jobs. Nobody should sell and do QA. Those are yeah. just not the same human. But also, like, it was a year of learning everything from conversation to shipment. It's horrible. I think I made $8, but it was worth it because now I can actually talk about it. Quit. Literally watched the Steve Jobs commencement speech about how if you're looking yourself in the mirror and you don't like what you're looking at or what you're getting up to go do, quit your job. I watched that, like, December 30th and then went in January 1st and quit. Yeah. (laughs) I even told him, I was just like, so I watched the Steve Jobs commencement. That's how I explained it. <laughs> I was like, don't take it personally. Steve Jobs um, told me to do this. Yeah, Steve Jobs told me to do this. So I promise it's a good idea. And all I'm eating is apples. So that it was just that one was like out of sheer anger. Like that one, I just fucking hated everything that company stood for. And I needed to get out of there. But I also knew that I needed to get back in the industry. Like as much, I am very Larry Davidy, I guess, in my like, ah, fuck you, I'm getting out of here. But also I know exactly where I'm going next. And actually this is kind of strategic, but I'm going to do it in a bit of a huff. Yeah. And then like, give me a month. And I'm like, who I was mad about what? Like, <laughs> you know, you have to remind me that I was even pissed about half this shit. Yeah. And you remember that I was pissed because you dealt with it. So I'm a good listener. You're a good listener. <laughs> this is a good example of that. Um, And then I ended up going to NBKC. Like I didn't have a job. Like they were just like, yeah, I mean, I guess if you can like build, if you can bring in partners, like maybe we'll consider giving you a job. Mm-hmm. So I quit that development company with nothing. And then I went and built the fintech portfolio and program for what is today known as like one of the top 20 fintech banks in the country. And like that was a fucking accident, you know, like that just kind of happened because it kind of happened because I actually had that free time to kind of make that happen. But you remember, I mean, that was a cool chapter. It was a cool chapter, but I was also fucking yoked because I was going to the gym twice a day. And like, it was like my priorities were backwards. That stress manifested itself beautifully. It did. It did. But it shouldn't have like no rational person, if without a job would go to the gym more 
eat more <laughs> and work less, you know, like it was, but somehow that turned into like exactly what it needed to be Yeah, because I was, I don't know, I was taking care of myself or something. It was yeah. very bizarre. And then leaving there was like fucking hard because I love them and that yeah. was difficult. So, and then now, you know, we can, we can get into the sabbatical story if you want, but it's, uh, I feel like most of the lessons from the sabbatical story maybe got covered by the story I just told. And then I don't have to throw anybody under a bus for giving me a sabbatical they shouldn't have given me. But maybe that's the lesson. Maybe the lesson here is if you have someone that's trying to leave your company, let them. (laughs) (laughs) Do not offer them a sabbatical. I mean, you know, there's certain circumstances, but if they've been there eight months, which I had been at that point, if they have not been there a decade or more, and we're not a instrumental piece of something, maybe just let them go. You know, don't, if somebody wants to leave, maybe let them leave. You don't always have to hold on to everybody and value your confidence in that instead of the way the market perceives somebody leaving or staying. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put it. I think if you are a highly visible employee, you may have more leverage than you think. That's another good lesson. That's if, a very good lesson, actually. If you, uh, or a company that's raising money and your suggested use of funds is to give it to an employee who no longer works at your company. That will not be impressive to investors. It would not. It would not. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. Right. Okay. Money 2020, which is the, the current employer (laughs) delivering you this incredible blissful working experience that you're, that you're having. Indeed. Money 2020 for the uninitiated like me is the, is it fair to say it's the biggest financial conference in the world? Yep. And there's two of them. There's two that happen every year. One, and I'm literally my boss from Money 2020 was calling me. I'm making sure nothing was burning. That's just texting his way through this. Through this never. Podcast. I'm making sure that the, the, you just said the word. You just said Beetlejuice. So I needed to make sure that Beetlejuice didn't <laughs> pop up. It's the largest financial conference in the world. Two two big ones that happen as of right now. There were more before COVID. But right now, it's one uh, that happens in Vegas every year that attracts anywhere from COVID numbers are around 10K, not pre-COVID numbers are anywhere from like 20 to 25K, something along those lines. The other one's in Amsterdam. It's a slightly smaller venue. So it's, you know, 10 to 15K, something like that, sometimes more pre. This year, I think with, or last year, I should say, with kind of coming out of COVID, it was like 8K or something like that. But anyways, a lot of people come and we do finance stuff. um, What's finance stuff? (laughs) Like, like, like it sounds dumb, but I think it's a fair question. Like who actually shows up to this thing? Is yeah. this like just bankers go? Is this like anybody who's selling to bankers? Yeah. Is this anybody who sells money? Is this investors? Is this like who shows up? A yeah. lot of people have money in the world. A lot of people. It's not clear to me what a finance industry even really is or where the boundaries are. That's actually a really good point. That's a really good, that's a, that's something that needs to be defined and has a very, very gray area. So money stuff encompasses Money 2020 is is innately a fintech conference, right? Okay. So the the goal of the conference, it was started in 2011, 2011. And the goal was to really just kind of pour gas on the fire that was starting to form around fintech. So coming out of the crisis, 
Obviously, the Satoshi white paper was written, but also a lot of people tried to put lipstick on a pig that became neobanks, right? So it's like the old school banking system, but with like a slightly prettier front end that's green and that gives you your you know money two days early or something like that, hypothetically. Yeah, Helvetica fonts. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. We changed the font, we changed the world. <laughs> put it in an app. Yeah. <laughs> change the font, we changed the world. That should be on like Adobe's front door or something. Um and this whole wave was like starting to form because people just didn't trust the classical financial industry, aka we saw what happened in 08. You well, know. banks didn't build a fucking website either. That's also true. That's yeah. also true. The ability to do online banking was actually way less than a lot of people remember or realize. Yeah. So, anyways, the com- the conference was started for that. It was an I mean, it was pretty small. I think it started with like less than a thousand people in a room just like nerding on shit. Mm-hmm. And then over a period of time it grew and grew and grew and now it's everything from, you know, investment bankers to venture capitalists to startups to regulators to bankers to like everybody 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 from the JP Morgan, biggest banks in the world, all the way to like, you know, when I was at MBKC, a sub billion dollar bank in assets, I was, I went twice. Okay. So I've been three times now. This will be my first year working there. And how did you just to, to kind of cap the like the Larry David employment story? How <laughs> um, did that opportunity come to you kind of more from attending and being there? Did it like something else we haven't mentioned yet is your podcast, which is like your three or four years into now for fintech sake, which is, I think definitively the least boring podcast about fintech that there is <laughs> for, for, for saying that and for specifying the low bar in the, in the, well, in the niche of, in the niche of fintech is a very big podcast actually. And like, I, I think in it on its own, right. Is a cool story about how like deeply niching down can create something super valuable. But did like did you end up at Money Twenty Twenty more because of the podcast or more because of the job? Like, how did how did that career leap happen? It's it's an interesting question. I think, and like not interesting question as I'm thinking about your answer, but interesting question as like it's actually an interesting question because I don't know. Like I, I truly, I'm, I'm going to Vegas this week for an onsite before the big thing that we do later in the year. And I want to get a drink with my boss and literally ask her this question. Yeah. Because she recruited me for a month before I took her seriously. Two weeks after that, before I really considered. And then another two weeks before I was like, okay, I need to come to New York and like meet you and like understand, like feel this. Yeah. So she probably spent like three months recruiting me. And like, you know me well enough to know that's fucking hilarious. Yeah. That's weird. (laughs) It's weird, right? It's weird. It's weird. But also seeing you kind of like tackle this challenge, I've got like, I don't know. It's, it is a pleasure to see you in, in a, your natural habitat and like planning a conference and doing work that like, I don't know, like I'm glad they recruited you because they're actually like using your full weirdness and eccentricity and energy and imagination to its fullest. Yeah, that's um, true. Do you have a personalized Chappelle hoodie? That is so sick. Have you never seen this? No. Oh, yeah. That's That's awesome. This is my second one. Lost the first one. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I I think like, I I don't know. I'm very excited to see the kind of like crazy shit you brew up for this thing. When you hear the answer, let me know. I'm excited to find out what it is. I mean, I have conjecture and... I mean, the con- so the way that I met Scarlett, it is not, but we also, we should say what your job is. Oh really yeah. Good point. That context. Good point. So 
U.S. content director, meaning I'm in charge of content in the U.S., but that what that actually means is that I'm in charge of developing the... With a team of fucking badasses, for the record. But I'm in charge of developing basically the thematic elements for what this year encompasses in the world of finance. That's pretty straightforward, right? Yep. Obvious. It's obvious. Like, let's pull out the three to five most interesting things and most uh, prevalent things in the world of finance right now yep. in the midst of everything in the world. Sure. And make sure that they encompass everything at the same time whilst being incredibly specific. That who is getting on stage and then also our plans for world domination, I would say are another big piece of it. So, you know, we do a big road show. We have a lot of digital stuff yeah. and in general, we're trying to kind of build things more in a direction of a media company. So that's the, that's the other part of my life is just in the back of my head, trying to figure out how to, how to move, how to move a really successful, highly profitable events company in a direction, not away from the events, but just thinking of the world in a more digital fashion, you know? Yeah. I mean, let's talk about the events business, like maybe in general and maybe specific to money in 2020. Cause I think it's a really interesting, like, I feel like events businesses get famously low multiples and are kind yeah. of like viewed as extremely fragile, yeah. but also produce a ton of cash yeah. and can be wildly lucrative. Yeah. So, it's like the one, it's the one business, you know how they say like, if you want to make money, don't start a company. Yeah. Like it's the one exception to that rule, I think, where like, if I was just broke and I knew a lot about one industry, I'd be like, do a conference like yeah. next week. Yeah. And even if we just get 50 people there, we're going to charge them all a thousand dollars. You know, it's like, yeah. it escalates so fast. And if you actually put something decent together, you it's, 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 it's very, very lucrative. Well, yeah. I mean, talk us through it. I think the events industry in general is scary as hell. I think that, I think the point of it being unsexy and risky is not untrue, yeah. right? Like in 2020, case in point yeah, yeah. yeah points on the board one for covid zero for all other things in the world including live events right <laughs> like it's like yeah. i mean so if you're hypothetically a business that does two events a year and i won't use actual numbers but i will say i mean money 2020 does two events a year so that part you you know Fair. the rest of this is made up <laughs> two events though I'm telling you the truth so let's say you make a hundred million dollars in a year 30 million of it is from your f second event 70 is from your first event you don't get to do either one, right? So whatever, it should have just been 50-50. I made it more confusing than it needed to be. What the fuck do you do? Yeah, when your revenue goes to zero. When it goes to zero yeah. and you have nothing but, I mean, you have some variable costs associated with like the venue and this and that, but you have nothing but fixed costs for the most part. Yeah. You know, you have employees, you have all of It's incredibly yeah. fucking scary. And if you have not... I mean, Money 2020 was lucky because it was bought by a publicly traded company in London pre any of this. So good valuation, good outcome for everybody and like had the staying power to get through all of it. But it is incredibly scary to think about what the world looks like if we were living. I mean, until Omicron, like I think we all were like, well, this is the new normal. All right. We're just going to, you know, I guess I'm going to be checking constantly how I'm supposed to handle the world in every mm -hmm. different city that I go to. But I think with 2020 having happened, I think the entire industry is like, okay, cool. Let's just make like, let's harvest what we can harvest, which is a large amount of people coming to one place with significant, with fixed costs and some variable costs. And then you harvest all, I mean, these, you really do just make millions of dollars in like three or four days. 
but it takes a year to set. But it up. takes a year to set that up. And if you if you want to make one of the if you want to build a event that takes thirty million that actually makes thirty million dollars, it takes years to yeah. set that up. You know, like it's it's an amazing business if you can build like a thousand person conference that you can set up by yourself with one other person or something like that in like three months. Like that's actually a pretty great idea as to how to live your life. I would probably be pretty happy. There'd probably be a good amount of like balance. Um, but that is not what you do to get to a 30 to 50 to a hundred million dollar event, right? Like the other companies that are owned inside of our portfolio is like canned lions, which is like one of the biggest advertising media film festivals in the world to the point where like, if you, if you get a, uh, lion from can lion you actually like get automatically like a 30 percent pay increase and a multitude of other things in Whoa. your industry automatically right awesome. but the other part so you i mean there's a lot award. well we'll check back in a year <laughs> the funny part though is that there was a publicly traded company that in 2020 said that they were nervous about hitting their numbers not because of covid but because of covid canceling money 2020 oh uh. Because they were like the amount they do, that they do like 30 to 40% of their business every year at this event, which wow. is insane. Right. So it's like as much, and this is the interesting part. It's like everybody wants to diversify away from the in-person stuff, but you're not, you can't. Yeah. It's like you have to have the in-person stuff for the business to actually happen. And like the content's great. And that's what everybody's trying to diversify with. It's like, mm -hmm. how do we become the next Netflix, the next Hulu for finance? It's like, I hope that happens. Yeah. But like the actual value of these things isn't in the content. It's in people in back rooms sitting and signing large multi-million dollar deals. Yeah, it's taking, you know, the 10,000 of the most powerful and influential people in the world and putting them all in the same city for five days. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What is the, can you say the rough order of magnitude of the budget of this event? In terms of like cost of goods yeah. sort of situation, I can say that it's less than the profits. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't trying as you relative. I think it's just like the the scale of under it under massive. ten under. Well, it's hard. It's hard because I mean it depends on how you calculate it, right? Yeah. Like if you truly are talking about like venue things along those lines. Also, Vegas is super expensive. Like something that people don't know about Vegas is that it's what's it called? Iron workers when they all get together. Unionized. Unionized. Thank you. Sorry, long day. They're unionized. So pretty much every like to pick a pencil up off the ground, you know, you need things signed in triplicate and mm -hmm. you're not allowed to do it yourself. And if you do, then you get fined or something. Right. It's it's yeah. insanity. So a better example would be outside of Vegas, there's a, a fintech conference called Lend It that happens in San Francisco. It probably gets like 5,000 people to show up, something like that. It's in a pretty nice spot on in a good area. I bet it costs 2 million bucks to put on. And things in Vegas are more expensive, much more expensive. For reasons. For reasons. And you yeah. can also, the other thing is like the premium nature of these things is fascinating. Because it's like a luxury it is. market. Yeah. You know, if you go to one conference a year, yeah. you have super pricing power. Exactly. It's like yeah. the Louis Vuitton of conferences. It's like, <laughs> it, it is, dude. And there's like the sales rack. I mean, the sales rack doesn't exist. And, the, yeah. you know, tickets are, it depends on the size of your company, but around three to four grand for one person. Yeah. You know, and, and that's, the attendees are paying you and the sponsors are paying you. Yeah. And 
you got to pay the unions. Yeah, I mean the yeah exactly yeah. yeah. But I mean those are the two. Those are in terms of like actually explaining the business. Those are the two big inflows. You sell yeah. tickets. You sell sponsorships. Put those together becomes pretty significant. But and and it's I mean it's also like a mini network effect. Like you end up you have thirty years of back history. If if people are coming here and doing like forty percent of their business for the year, do you have massive pricing power? Like. And people tend to just go back to the conferences that work and yeah. it's expensive and exclusive to try something else. Yeah. Um, if anything, there's only so much time. Exactly. The it's, biggest problem is the South by problem where people just show up and don't buy a ticket. That's yeah. the hardest thing for any conference. I think so oh, like, interesting. you just attract all of these people, these people, you create mm-hmm. this mini network effect and then Eric and Bo sit in a fucking, you know, sit Park in a van, RV, yeah, in a RV in a parking lot somewhere. And I've been to South by like money. three times. I've never once had a pass. That's I've never even saying. been into the conference. That's why I call it the South by problem. Yeah, I'm your problem. Well, <laughs> not, yeah, yeah, until this year, because you're coming. But yeah, it's I call it the South by problem because yeah. it's just like the place where it's most visible. But yeah. I think it's it's it's, it's across problem. the whole industry. On the other end of the event business spectrum is your your little mini event Personal V-sum. events, business, VSUM. Yeah. You want to you tell me about VSUM? Sure. Yeah. So VSUM was started, it, it, stands, it stands for Value Summit. It was started in the midst of the pandemic between a friend of mine and myself and Jesse, my girlfriend. And she, <laughs> it really just started out of like sheer boredom and depression, I would say. Mm-hmm. For the most part, yeah. I was pretty de- I was pretty depressed, and Ben, the founder of Dwalla, who co-founded it with me, was pretty bored. Yep. And Jesse was living it's the start with, of a lot of great things. It is, it is. Yeah. And Jesse was living with me, so she was like, "Good lord, fine, whatever." <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, we we started it in 2020. The goal was basically just like bring new technology, so that Ben and I, Ben was like kind of considering being a VC. He was like, "Maybe I'll do this, maybe I'll do that." He's like way too good of a person to be a VC, so he didn't do that. That, but just kidding. I love all of you. So he, we just wanted to stay close to technology though. So we were like, all right, three companies come, they do like a live demo and then we'll just like talk about shit. And then mm-hmm. that turned into those three companies from the first one, like right after we finished all raised like 20 million plus rounds, oh, wow. <laughs> kind of weird. And then we did the second one and they all raised like 30 million plus rounds. Like it's, if you actually look back at, we've done 11 or 12 of them now. If you look back, there's like over a billion dollar raised in Whoa. these in these companies. Was that the express purpose, or is it just kind of like total accident? When you get you know total accident, cool finance companies yeah. demoing and yeah. two hundred investors looking at them. Yeah, it, not even investors. Like, no, so it's it's a hundred. P- yeah, I should explain more what the event is. I just you know so much about my life, it's almost like hard to know how much to go into and not. Anyways, and you've been to one. So a hundred people or less. The goal is, from that is one, so we don't pay for Zoom, and two, so that <laughs> this is so funny because we have billionaires on this thing. So we don't pay for Zoom, and to keep the just to keep the the feeling of community tight, mm-hmm. right? And yeah, so it opens with an opening, the and then we do two little what we call Russian roulette intros. So well. We'll just call them intro roulette because this is connotations now. But basically, just connotations to- before. It's true. Russian roulette intros, and it just tosses you into a room with a random person. You talk to them for three minutes, and that happens twice. So uh, off the bat, like yeah. the quality of people in this hundred-person room are always going to be generally pretty high, always pretty interesting, and something always to learn from these people. So you meet two new people off the bat like that it takes you six minutes. 
From there, we take you into demos. The demos are each five to 10 minutes-ish. So in 15 to 30 minutes, you see three new companies, but you don't just see three new companies. You see three new backends and you actually see how the APIs function. You see how you see how the product manager either has or hasn't done a good job of setting up the sandbox. You see, like you see the ins and outs of everything, which as an investor is really interesting. But as an operator and somebody that doesn't know shit about technology for the most part, is really really interesting because then you can suddenly talk about it. And it's a savvy crew. I mean, like the it's questions very get savvy asked crew. by you know, there's technical leaders in there who are asking about the like the tech questions there's finance people there's regulators who are like um yeah uh, so yeah it's yeah. very and that's why it's all off the record and so yeah. everything so the demos are recorded and they're up on youtube so you can go look for vsum if you want to see the demos that we're talking about v dash sum but everything else is totally off the record to the point where if you do do any attribution I can't. She's so cute. Focus. <laughs> I'm totally focusing. My puppy's just all up in your business. There's a dog running around for those listening. And everything else from there is off the record to the point where if there is any attribution, we kick you out of the community. So we yeah. do uh, breakout rooms with like a max of 15 people where it's either a subject, right? It's like the DAO tooling or like is inflation as bad as we think it is, right? And it's like that seems like an uninteresting subject potentially to spend an hour out of left field with people you don't know in a room. But when it's this quality person, yeah. it's fucking fascinating. It's pretty much impossible not to learn something. Yeah. Even if you don't contribute at all, you just sit there silently and you can learn something. But the really interesting part is, to your point, the regulators and the people that normally don't speak openly. Like, it's not crazy to have a crypto bro come out of left field and be like, here's my most inner thoughts. You know, like, that's not like anything that you don't see on the Internet every day. That's just Twitter. Yeah. But regulators and... Like we have the most successful, not even most successful, most helpful and respected fintech lawyer in the world that shows up to every goddamn event and contributes and participates in a way that he's just like another one of us. Yeah. And I'm still so deferential to this individual that I am like always nervous when I talk to him. And yeah, I just worthy. exactly. Yeah. We're not worthy. And that's how I feel every time in it. So I don't know. Anyways, the the if there's a lesson to be learned, it's do things in private. <laughs> yeah. Which is funny With for smart somebody people. who like spends planning a conference, spending so much time yeah. like podcasting. But I, I mean, you and Jesse put on an amazing event. Jesse is really, really good at running, especially digital events. Yeah. But yeah, VSUM is yeah. incredibly like well-produced and high energy. And it's just kind of amazing to like see all of the random experiences that you've had like come together and start to form this vague theme of like high energy, unique, super high value events. But yeah, I mean, I think the, if there's a takeaway from any of that, I think it's like you have the, the public stuff is table stakes. The public stuff, like doing the podcast, if you don't enjoy doing a podcast, don't do a podcast. But if you do, if you are that kind of person, do the public work, like my podcast is your Twitter account, right? Like you, you, you've done some good Twittering, my friend. And it's impressive the reach that you've been able to build on the back of it. But you wouldn't be you, I don't think, if you didn't do like Junto as an example. Like mm -hmm. we used to do this like private happy hour dinner series thing that we did together. Saying that to the world, not to you. You know what it is. That I think that's where you get the competitive advantage. Like you have to do the public stuff. That's just required. Right. Like that's and it's fun. That's where all the fun happens. Yeah. But I don't think that your public stuff is good unless if it's informed by the private stuff.
Yeah, there's been a couple of times in my career where I've just either been in the right room or the right conversation. And I've been like, there is just nobody who's going to say what you just said from the stage. But it was a life changing like thing for me to hear. So yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that. You know, there's no, we can learn a lot from podcasts. We both have learned a lot from podcasts. But it's, it is not quite the same as like getting in some of those private rooms at the conferences or digitally at some or something like that and hearing yeah. some of the off the record stuff. One of my favorite stories of yours is the one is one of your biggest fuck ups. When Do I have fuck ups, you have fuck ups when you met Brian Armstrong. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Did the listeners know this story? Probably. I, I met Brian Armstrong in like 2012 at an Airbnb party because he's an Airbnb alum. Brian Armstrong, the founder of he's a Coinlist, Coinbase. Oh, he's a YC alum. No, Airbnb. Airbnb. He's an Airbnb alum. Yeah. He used to work at Airbnb. Yeah. Well, what do you do there? I think he was a developer. Huh. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Um, I'm like, what was his job title? No, I'm I just didn't sure. know that. I, I could be wrong. I I'm thought you sure. fucked up. You I don't think YC was, alum because I don't no. think Coinbase went through YC. I think they did. Did they? Yeah. Wow. This is getting off the rails. But yeah. I met Ryan Armstrong and he was like, explaining bitcoin to me and i was i'd had one one or perhaps too many beverages to totally comprehend the magnitude of what he was explaining to me and properly reorient my life around cryptocurrency in the year 2012 which would have had oh uh, it was 2012 it was a long time ago which which would have had a, a meaningful impact in my life and that's why alcohol is bad for you <laughs> And yes. you should never drink it. Leave it on that public service announcement. That's fucking amazing. You never know when you're going to meet the next Brian Armstrong and you're going to be a little too stupid to understand and a little too impatient to wait and a little too forgetful to follow up. But it's such a good story. I mean, it's so painful, but it's such a good... We were having this conversation yesterday about a potential podcast you were going to do. And it's like, it's so much better to have that personal pain than to have that pain on the behalf of somebody else. I would just rather have like a billion dollars, one or two thousand bitcoins. Sure. And I'm sure you probably understand. I mean, I would have gone with USD, but yeah, I would convert it quickly into USD. I'm just not a maximalist. Well, get on board. I, I mean, no, I mean, I'm, I'm a crypto, I'm a crypto is the maximalist. New 2020, 2012. All right, sure. <laughs> No, what I mean that whatever is going to be awesome in 2032 is happening in some nascent moment today, and we're just not paying attention. No, to yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's go build a DAO. I'm down. Uh, <laughs> we must stop. <laughs> I appreciate you hanging out with us today. Thank you so much for listening. I encourage you to please leave a quick review in your podcast app of choice, or text this episode to a friend to help support the show. If you like this episode, you will also love my conversations with Jason Hitchcock on DeFi, NFTs, and the metaverse. Also great takes on how technology and finance will work together in the future. And also my episode with Andrew Finn of G64 Ventures and Wait But Why, who talks about how to acquire private companies and when you got to know when to eat a shit burger. <laughs> I appreciate you uh, listening. Thank you so much. Um, I hope you took something away from this episode and maybe something to uh, carry with you, a question for yourself, a takeaway from this episode uh, could be how stubbornness could serve you. Uh, where have you perhaps been slightly too malleable in the conditions that you've accepted and where have you compromised on your mission or your vision um, for your life? And uh, where could you stand to be a little more stubborn and 
get something a little better out of the universe. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. This is all about laughing and learning, building leverage, and compounding our faces off. What our brains aren't evolved to comprehend is how much leverage is possible in modern society. There's a revolution going on, man. Uh, Go pay attention to it. Get a part of it. Get exposed to it. You're going to make money along the way. You're going to have fun. The call to adventure. This is the new form of leverage. Take a few quiet moments for yourself. Breathe deep and be well. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.